Hello there and welcome to the 9 o'clock show weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the past week. On this week's show, Corkman Paddy O'Brien shares the uplifting story of how he helped a homeless man find his first home after decades of living in a derelict factory. Harpist Marina Cassidy shares her lifelong love of music. She now helps her patients through music therapy. Fiona O'Regan was listening to Paddy O'Brien on Monday's show. He inspired her to reach out to her local nursing home. Pilot Laura Russell is the first Irish female to take part in the World Advanced aerobatic championships and on Friday's show Jackie Smith of Tusla talks about how to become a foster carer that's it for this week thanks for listening I hope you enjoy it we spotted a story in the Evening Echo about a man who will have his first proper Christmas this year thanks to Paddy O'Brien who has been advocating for the elderly in Cork for over 60 years and Paddy joins me on the line now to tell us more about it good morning Paddy good morning Brendan how are you very well indeed. Uh, yes, indeed, it was um, a sad story, but with a very thank, pretty thank God, a very happy ending. I came across this gentleman, true another gentleman, last December, and I had asked Johnny Rother. He was living in a appalling conditions in a, a slaughterhouse, and um, for 40, 43 years. And uh, as a result, well, I my attention, I contacted the housing department and in the month of June we got the key to the house and on the 15th of August he moved into his new home and for a man who was lived on his own for years and years and years he set it down quite well thank God and we were with him last week we set up a Christmas tree for him oh. the house is beautifully decorated and I, I, I must say that um, he's I most appreciate what's been done for him because the people of Cork actually furnished the whole house oh. for him Two, uh, two bedrooms, a television in his bedroom, television downstairs, every, everything. See, now this but, is a Christmas um, story I love now. This is just adorable. But go back, back. I mean, he lived in a disused slaughterhouse on the edge of Cork City for 40 years. 43 years, exactly, yeah. yeah. He, 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 he started working there, I believe, when he was about 14 years of age. And he worked for so many years and he was uh, working during the day and he was, what would you call, oh, a night watchman at night time and then the place closed down and he continued to live there wow. he continued to live there for another 20 years after that it was a total of 40, 42 years so. that he was living there and since I came across him I asked myself the quickest question I wonder how many more guns are living throughout the country yeah how many more people are living in, in, living in similar conditions, not necessarily in the, in the slaughterhouses, living in conditions? And he, was, he wasn't on the waiting list at all, at all. There was no waiting list. I don't, he, he didn't understand about waiting lists. But eventually we got the home for him, and um, he's now celebrating his first Christmas. He, I'd say he shed a tear when he got his first, got his first Christmas card for the first time in his life. Oh, the first time... The first time li- living in a house with decorations, Christmas tree, and a lovely, happy um, Christmas so atmosphere in his pa- home. Just to be, paint the picture, the slaughterhouse had been closed for all those years, right? And he was just living yeah. rough, basically. So it's dilapidated. Was it in very bad disrepair where he was living? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a house at all, at all. I mean, the the, the workings of the the slaughterhouse are still there. The chain, the the the, um, the steel rings where the sheep were hanged from, they were they were all still there. God. They were all still there with this poor man, and um, he just lived an ordinary, lived his life there in the house. And he had two dogs, and they were his, they were his best friends. And as a matter of fact, that was the greatest problem I experienced. 
is that um, when it came to time moving to the house, he was making very difficult for him to leave the dogs, quite honestly. And he was heartbroken for a while. But it was sad. But um, thankfully, he settled down quite well. And he's in a nice neighbourhood. And the children from a local school came last week from Terence McSweeney College in Cork, um, outside his home in St. Carlos. And that was a great moment of joy for him as well. So how did you meet him? Somebody just told you about him because you, you do this kind of work. I got a phone work. call from another gentleman Yeah, on the 31st of January. And he was giving me the details, this gentleman. He had met him. John would do a weekly shopping someplace in Blackpool. And this man was giving me the details. And quite honestly, Brendan, I thought this man was making a mistake that he was exaggerating the situation. But I made contact with him. I was his mobile. Were made contact with him, and shocked, uh, appalled that anyone, anyone, anyone could mm. live in these conditions, or that anyone would be living um, in bad conditions for forty-three years and nobody know anything about it. And we always, since then, I've said to people, when you're in a situation like that, that you personally might be able to do anything. We'll contact somebody, contact housing, contact some organisation working with the aged. Let them handle it for you. But in, in this situation, he wasn't on any waiting list. Mm. And I, I have to say again and repeat myself that city council were very helpful. And they gave me a beautiful home in, in Blackpool, a very old part of Cork, surrounded by many elderly people. His neighbours on his left hand side, of his left side, his right side, across the road from them. And they, they, you know, they're neighbours and they look, they look after each other. Yeah, I mean, thank God he, got, he came across you, really. Um, so you, you do this kind of... people. You're well known in Cork, I know that, for helping the, uh, advocate on behalf of older people. And you do amazing work. And... the. This man is an example of someone who exists on the outside, really, isn't it? They're sort of the forgotten, yeah. the forgotten people, really, aren't they? And 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 that is, they, they, they are they are they are forgotten, forgotten, and because it's Christmas, kind of at the moment, many other people are forgotten about as well, mm-hmm. incredibly. I yeah. come across a lot of it. I'm working seventy years with elderly people. I started, I started working as a messenger boy when I was 14 and a half years of age. And that particular area, in the Pope's Key area of Cork, I was surrounded by elderly people. And I found myself going to the chemist, going for paraffin oil, going for a brown loaf, going for a pan, going to the chemist. And when the three weeks, I said I'd go work for three weeks. I never went back to school anymore. I don't have any formal education. But I can't honestly say this, Brendan, that working in that area with elderly people who I saw had no voice, poverty-stricken, awful conditions, that was my university of life. And that's why I continue to work with the elderly now on, on a daily basis. And I, the most important thing is not to fight for more money for them, no. The greatest single problem facing elderly people today is loneliness. Loneliness is like one of the conventional diseases that kills people. There is no cure for loneliness except visitation. It's a, 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 a silent disease. And with loneliness, no matter how lonely you are and how depressed you are, you can go to your GP. He can't give you medication. But there is one cure, one cure for loneliness, and that is the human touch the importance of visitation to elderly people. 
In, the, in this country, we have 189,000 people living alone over 65 years of age. 189,000. And many, that high percentage are housebound. And I think to combat loneliness for, for, for these people, to do something, everybody must do something. Mm. And I'd love to see a, a, a visiting company set up in every parish to combat loneliness. I'd love to see more thought about community care and the elderly in second-level education. I'd like to see, I'd like to see a minister for the health. Mm. We have the minister. We don't have minister for the health. Uh, things, things, just things like that. But um, I congratulate all different organisations throughout the country doing tremendous work. Tremendous work. And I come across elderly people <coughs> who are broken-hearted. Elderly people in hospitals who in fact have been put there by their sons and daughters. Mm. They decide that the mammy or the daddy must go to a home that they'd be happier than living on their own. Not the GP, the sons and daughters. And elderly people are put in nursing homes in this country and they're quite able to be able to continue at home and then they're forgotten about. They're ignored and it's no visit. I know that they're in Cork, I know, in nursing homes in this city and the county. That there'll be elderly people this year, their very own sons and daughters won't visit them. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say that, whereas I'm saying it's a serious problem, loneliness is a serious problem. But it's also not because if you're living on your own, but people can be very, very lonely in nursing homes as well. Very lonely in nursing homes. And as a direct result of that, I visit nursing homes with entertainment every Thursday, different nursing homes. Um, I'll just continue for a moment. Back in 1977, mm-hmm. 45 years ago, I was still speaking about loneliness, and I decided to do something to combat loneliness. And I started a competition called the Over 60s Talent Competition. Mm-hmm. I went into every parish in Cox County. We'd have a big night at the Opera House for the semi-final and the City Hall for the final. And that went on for 45 years up to the, up to the COVID. Mm-hmm. And I must say, that got people out of their homes. That got people something to look forward to. They'd look forward to going to the City Hall, to the local heat. And I think more must be done. And I want to make a very strong point, Brendan, this morning is that I am not a member of any organisation, group or society. I work on my own, I use the terminology, as a Christian, where I see people who are sick with loneliness. And anyone, no matter who you are this morning, you can help the elderly. And I'm saying to people, go and knock at your neighbour's door, an elderly person, and try and adopt them for at least for Christians. Take them to Mass Christmas morning. Religion, the Catholic faith is very important. Mass is very important to our elderly people. And many of them are housebound. Many of them are living too far from the church. And to do a good deed, knock, knock on the neighbour's door now, not Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. and make yourself available to go in over Christmas. A family should adopt an elderly person. Bring a person to your home, even for the Christmas lunch. And let, let, let young people see what can be done for elderly elderly people. You and you really I know what you're talking about, Paddy, because you you are in the communities for these you, you you see, and you are so passionate now. I can hear it about the, actually this illness, which you're called, which is loneliness. Yeah, and so and, and this time of year as well, it's really amplified. I feel, isn't it? Say that again, Brendan. Loneliness, please. particularly, is felt around Christmas time. I think. Well, well, <clears throat> let me say this. Yes, for definite. 
But regrettably, and it's the sad part, that I meet people and they said to me, Paddy, I wish it was all over. I wish it was all over. Why? Because they're lonely, because their very own sons and daughters are ignoring them. But yeah, it goes throughout the year as well, but it's worse at Christmas. But I mum so many years ago, and I hope you don't mind me saying that, mm-hmm. you wrote an article or you, and, and you were interviewed on television mm-hmm. and you spoke with loneliness. Yeah. You spoke with your mum, your, mom, your dad. Yeah. You, some, you said something about loneliness. And I said, that's good. When I heard you speaking, I said, it's people well known like that, personalities in this country. And it make it will make people realise what it is to live on your own. Mm. There were people will wake this morning, Brendan. They go out of bed, they come downstairs. They mightn't speak to anyone for three or four days. Yeah. I'm not criticising the government, but I am explaining what's happening in this country at the moment. We have a situation where the population is increasing year after year. As I already said, 198,000 people over 65. Despite the fact that the population is increasing, the services are not increasing. True. Throughout the entire country, the difficulty now today in getting proper services, the difficulty for a public health nurse to call to see a sick person, the difficulty it is to get meals on wheels, the difficulty that exists and is appalling is disgraceful for a person today to get a simple thing like a home help. They're called home carers. In Cork City and County, Brendan, there are 1,604 people waiting on a home help. Mm. 1,600 waiting. And in Dublin, there are 32. So anybody listening to you now... The the, the population has increased, but the services have not increased. I I want you to give you an opportunity to address people who are listening and what people can do. What would your message for Christmas be? For people listening, or you know, lay people listening who would like to do something based on what you're saying, yeah. uh, what would you like to say to listeners today coming into Christmas? I would say to the people that, but I'll repeat myself, you don't have to join any organisation. You do it in your own time. A simple thing, as the old song says, simple things mean a lot. Knock on a neighbour's door, befriend a number, introduce yourself, get your family to do messages for an elderly, elderly people in the parish. Knock on the door, um, offer a simple thing. Have you, have you got enough of food every day? Um, go to shop for the milk. Uh, send them a Christmas card, drop a Christmas card in, in, in the letter box. There are many, many, many people throughout the country who will never even get a Christmas card. A Christmas, a day, the week goes by and nothing happens. And it's been lovely to get more elderly people, people in your own in your own area, that you get to, to get to know them. And I will always say to people then, when you adopt a friend at Christmas, if you want to bring them to your home mm-hmm. or if you want to cook them a meal, and deliver the meal to that person's home. Just keep an eye on them. Exchange telephone numbers. And the greatest thing you can tell a person when they're living alone, look, this is my number. Contact me if you're in trouble. But I spoke recently at a function in Cork, and I said that the greatest gift anyone can give an, an elderly person, and it's a precious gift, and it's one word, time. Mm. Give them time. Yeah. Give them time. I and mean, you give the elderly time that you know that they feel then somebody loves them, somebody cares about them, so that they're not, they're, not, they're not forgotten. And I go back to my early days of working as a messenger boy at 14 half year, years of age, 1953. That's where I saw loneliness. People with no visitors whatsoever. 
people didn't have enough of money and, and living in appalling, appalling, appalling conditions. And I only for I went to work and at that young age and continued to work, yeah. I would not be perhaps speaking to you, to you this morning. Paddy, listen, keep up the good work. You're amazing. And we've had a lovely response. People are, are uh, really agreeing with you. Lovely text here. I agree. Paddy, loneliness is a killer disease and your message is really clear. And I hope you have a very, very happy Christmas. And thanks for taking our call this morning. You had much indeed, Brendan. God bless. Take a quick break. Now, I'm so excited and delighted to be joined in studio by renowned Irish harpist, vocalist and music therapist, Marina Cassidy. Good morning. Good morning, Brendan. And so lovely to be here. And you're, uh, let me set the scene. Marina's sitting facing me with a harp, an actual <laughs> harp in the studio. How exciting. So, Marina, um, we met, I was hosting the HSE Excellence Awards and you, and you were accompanying me on stage and we met. Uh, but tell listeners a little bit about yourself. So, what do you do? Okay, well, um, I am a music therapist in recent years, but prior to that, I suppose from from the early years, I have been a musician, um, began my music studies at a very young age. I grew up in a village in uh, County Meath called Kilmainham Wood, very close to the birthplace of the um, 17th century Irish harper, Thurlock Carolyn. Oh, really? Yes. So I suppose the uh, curiosity about the harp and then the opportunity to learn it um, started at a young age. Um, and then uh, before becoming a music therapist, I've been a teacher. I've worked in a primary school. I've taught music and I've done a lot of performing. So would you, as a child, would you have known that this famous Celtic harpist was from your area, Turlock Carlin. You knew that? Um, yes, I mean, that would have been one of the stories that you would have heard locally, you know, wow. it was very much part of the folklore. And um, and the fact that Carolyn was a blind harper oh. um, always fascinated me. So here was this um, great musician um, who was composing all these lovely tunes but uh, was composing them uh, relying on his ear. You know, um, the musicians at that time would have been illiterate musicians. And um, I was always fascinated by that um, whole tradition, the oral tradition, I suppose, where the tunes were passed down. Um, And so when I... I can see why that story would really be curious to a child as well. Yes. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And this harper, he began his life in uh, County Meath, but then moved to the northwest of Ireland. And the stories of this harper, you know, travelling around the locality uh, with a harp and a horse and um, a guide to lead him so that he could entertain in the great Irish houses. And then, of course, that wow. was what prompted all the wonderful tunes he composed for his patrons. So you, before you started, you trained in music therapy, you were, were a soprano and a harpist, but you st- you've travelled the world singing and performing, haven't you? I've had some really <laughs> nice opportunities that have come about. Um, I think what's special for me was that all my engagements always had a personal connection. Oh. So, you know, people who heard me somewhere and then invited me to come. And um, for example, at a very young age, I, I was brought to um, L.A. to do the music for a wedding. That was very exciting as yeah, a 20 year old <laughs> yeah. from a small village in Meath. <laughs> 
And, and I'm seeing here as well Kensington Palace um, you played uh, for the uh, what was Kensington Palace by the way how did that work uh, the event in Kensington Palace was uh, for a Chilean mining company wow. so again somebody who had heard me here in Ireland and had a connection with that company um, what was particularly significant about that was it was during the uh, Chilean mining disaster yes. where the miners were trapped so I just remember a very special atmosphere at that event. And um, I think my own awareness too, through my life, of how music can really reach people and always wanting to be inclusive as a musician. So when I was invited to do that, I decided that with respect to the Chilean culture, I should learn one of their songs. And so I found a beautiful song called Gracias a la Vida. And completely coincidentally, I performed it that night And um, an elderly lady came up to me and her husband, her late husband, had been the founder of the Chilean Mining Company, who had passed away recently. And that was the song that was. So I think there was always that maybe intuitive thing with me about the power of music, which has ultimately led me to pursuing music therapy. Um, Before we go into music therapy, I'm fascinated by, you know, a young child taking on such a huge instrument. You know, how old were you when you started to play the harp? I was about 11. And what it must have seemed huge, did it? Well, actually, <laughs> they were huge. So I was very fortunate that in my primary school years, I had a wonderful music teacher, um, you know, who really was very visionary in what we got to do as, as children. And then I was fortunate to go to secondary school in Mount Sackville, where the music was very big. But the memory from there that stands out was at that time, concert harps, beautiful, big, gold, ornate harps, you know. And I remember there were eight of them in Mount Sackville. And I can still hear the sound of us in the choir singing uh, Puccini's humming chorus from Madame Madame Butterfly, accompanied by eight harps. Wow. And that was really special. But then there was a shift um, towards the the Celtic harp, the Irish harp, Probably for practical reasons. It's a bit smaller, is it? It's a bit easier to get around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so through my time in Mount Sackville, I was very fortunate to have um, really good training in both harp and singing. OK. And um, yeah. So music therapy. And I think when we chatted, when we met, we, it was really funny because we're in Farmley. Mm-hmm. It was a really lovely, beautiful event, wasn't it? And it beautiful. was celebrating excellence in yeah. in health service. So it was all very poignant and very grown up. And because you're not allowed to plug anything in in Farmley, you know that you're not allowed to plug instruments in because it's an old building. Uh, they had this idea to bring a harpist in, and it was every time I walked on stage, I walked onto the noise of a harp. It's like an angel. <laughs> I was like, this is always <laughs> how I imagined I'd enter a room. How did you just mentioned to me there when we were chatting afterwards? that you're a music therapist. And I was like, oh, tell me about that. So uh, give us a little bit of context on music therapy. When was it first introduced to Ireland? Oh, first introduced to Ireland in 1978. But of course, music therapy originated um, as a response to uh, PTSD, post-traumatic syndrome, um, from soldiers returning from the war during World War II. That was its beginnings. And then in the 1950s, um, I suppose it began to be um, formulated into the profession that it is now. Now it is, you know, there's a very rich body of evidence um, 
showing how music can be used um, to promote health um, in rehabilitation. So it's used in a wide variety of settings, both um, health, educational. Um, but the first one in Ireland was in 1978. Um, a lady called Catherine O'Leary brought it to a psychiatric unit in Cork. OK. Um, so what the, the benefits, I'd have a list here. So what are the benefits of music therapy? How, like, give us a practical hands on. Well, I think firstly, two people don't, you know, they just say, what is music therapy? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of um, so music <laughs> therapy is where we use the elements of music. So, you know, pitch, rhythm, texture, dynamics, all of that. Um, and we use that through a wide range of instruments. But we use it for very specific therapeutic goals. Okay. So the thing about music therapy is that it takes part place within a therapeutic relationship. So it's between you, the um, the client, whether that's a patient, maybe um, a resident in a care home, and in my case too, it's also working with children in a children's hospital. Um, and then we use music, you know, with uh, specific goals around physical emotional, um, a wide range of needs, the spiritual needs, uh, communication needs. So, um, but the thing about music therapy is we can only practice um, when we have a master's in music therapy okay. because it is, a, is it, a, it is a form of psychotherapy using music. Of course. Well, it is. So it is. It's a yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so you trained as a music therapist. Yes. So just my journey into yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, doors present themselves when we least expect it. Um, in 2017, I'm attached to uh, MISA, the Mercer Institute for Successful Ageing at St. James's Hospital. I know it well. I love it. Yeah. It's yeah. A it's a wonderful place, place yeah. where creativity is very much part yeah. of um, patient care and rehabilitation. Um, there's a creative life pillar which stands beside the medical, the research, the education. Um, and in 2017, the first um, Bialtana festival uh, took place in Misa and I was invited there to perform. And during my day there, I had some time to spare and I volunteered to go to one of the stroke wards. And um, immediately, you know, the, the, the patients there began to respond to the music. You know, they began to keep time. They began to sit up straight. Wow. Maybe use their upper limbs in a way that they hadn't. They began to sing. You know, I was very mindful of maybe songs that they knew respecting the, the age group. Conversations began to happen. And um, wow. I suppose I've always maybe had an ease of with connecting with people through music and always saw, for me, it was about the impact of music on an individual. Yeah. Um, and there were... Uh, Two uh, professors there, the late Professor Davis Coakley and Professor Roseanne Kenny witnessed this and uh, they suggested that I would come back and do some further work. But I said, yes, but I need to get properly trained to work in a clinical setting. And so began my journey. Uh, I went to Edinburgh and uh, undertook a two year master's with the vision of bringing this back um, as opposed to St. James's. Um, and uh, I chose to go to England, too, because, of course, in England, we are recognised as healthcare professionals. 
Oh, okay. Um, that's a status we're still, I suppose, pursuing here. Um, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes. Wow. I'm, mm. Why are we slow to that, do you think? Um, I think, I suppose, all of these things take time. Um, but it is so important because now um, in, in St. James's, again, in collaboration with the Creative Life Department, um, there would be a gradual integration into the work of the other allied healthcare professionals. Okay. So now I would work closely with um, speech and language therapists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers. Um, and we're all working on shared goals. Okay. For a patient rehabilitation or for well-being. Um. And I'm really struck by the, it's almost cinematic of you going in with your harp to a stroke ward and seeing physical reaction from, to the music. That must have been very powerful, was it? Yes, I mean, I would be very mindful, um, I suppose, with an instrument like a harp. I would never bring my harp in in my initial meeting okay. with a patient because it can be a bit overwhelming. I mean, the other wonderful thing about music therapy, too, is that for the most part, you're giving people a whole new experience. Most people we work with wouldn't have any musical background. It's not necessary. Yeah. But how exciting for an older adult and for a child to have the opportunity to explore uh, music. So harp is just one of the instruments. We have a wide range of, of tuned, untuned percussion instruments. Um, but then there would be many times, say, you know, we, we work with um, both uh, receptive and expressive music. There would be many times where I would use my harp, say, to promote relaxation, maybe to reduce agitation. Can we have a little... Can I a little look at some of the techniques or a little listen to some of the techniques that you would use? Would you show me? Uh, yes. Great. Yeah. You say in relation to that, I've had the uh, wonderful privilege, I would call it, of bringing harp music to the ICU department. Wow. And that's really special because there you have to be so aware, so attuned to the environment around you, yeah. be able to adapt to that. So, you know, there would be times where that might be about just matching a patient's rate of breathing. Wow. Yeah. And that could be something, you know, just very, very gentle, maybe just... You know, and then sometimes I would notice... It's so patients. beautiful, though. It's really moving. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. There's almost an undercurrent of emotion to the harp, though, isn't there? There is, because I think there's that depth of sound. As an instrument, it works very well in those spaces because I can... It's gentle. Yeah, and I can use the full range of it. And say, for example, in ICU, you know, I might see somebody maybe begin to tap their foot under the blanket. Really? Yeah. They may be, you know, just coming back into a level of awareness. Wow. And then I might just change into a... to match that um, and of course that's very much too about normalising that clinical environment you mm. know I in clinical settings usually the only acoustic sound is the sound of bleeps yeah um, and that was very much key um, I came into MISA first in uh, when I when I graduated in 2020 during the Covid pandemic 
um, and I was part of a wonderful project project called Behind the Front Lines. Um, oh, wow. And that was to support frontline staff. I bet you they love to see you coming. Yeah, to relax, yeah. maybe take the temperature down a bit even. Yeah. Just. Do you play different music depending on whether it's a, 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 a child or an adult? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, as a music therapist, it has to be patient, child-centred and patient-led. So again, we're just using music to facilitate their expression. Um, so that entails covering a wide range of music. Because the music that matters to a patient is is what they want, you know. Um, so obviously with a child, um, improvisation is very much part of the work. Um, so even as late as yesterday, you know, I was working with a little boy and uh, he wanted to explore the chimes and he wanted to make lots of noise. So I went with that. Um so again, just backing that, sometimes I'm using a guitar, sometimes a keyboard. And of course, the human voice is key. Mm. Um, <clears throat> this little boy, there were moments he wanted to bounce on the bed. So that was full of energy. Then he would maybe lie down to rest. And I went with him all the time. OK. Yeah. What kind of music do you play for children, like compared to what you were just playing there? Um, Can you give us a little blast? Yeah, I mean, for the children, I suppose it's it's very much about, you know, their songs. Oh, yeah, of course, um, yeah. For example, a, a song I, I use a lot is um, the lovely song from Toy Story, You've Got a Friend in oh, Me. Gorgeous. You know, yeah. and that's where music too can maybe say what words can't say. So there's lyrics in that, you know. You've got a friend in me You've got a friend in me When the road ahead seems rough And you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed <laughs> So those lyrics can maybe say what the child, what the parents, what the siblings are feeling Yeah, yeah um, so that's where it's a very powerful tool. Um, working with the children, um, I'm a music therapist as part of the palliative care and the long stay um, team in the Children's Hospital in Crumlin and a little bit in Temple Street. And that is very family centred, child centred. And the other thing, too, is it's strengths based. So when children or adults are unwell, there's a huge focus on what they can't do. OK. Music affords us the opportunity to focus on what they can do. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Okay. And that's really key. And there's nothing more wonderful than to see a family. You know, I would give an instrument to every member of the family. <laughs> wow. Um, and to see a family being able to be like that together, you know. So that's all about maybe normalising a clinical environment. Um, and again, whether it's children or adults, you know, the, the non-verbal component of music is huge. Um, Do you use it for speech therapy with children? Uh, yes. Yes. Yes, I can. I've done more of that work with adults oh, in you? stroke rehabilitation. Okay. Um so again, you know, the goals there would be to um, what's really interesting is that when when people can't speak, they can still sing because music is processed across all areas of the brain. Wow. 
Um, so we have, um, there's, a, there's a training called neurologic music therapy, which I have undertaken, and there would be very specific techniques in that. So in speech rehabilitation, you know, that would be the use of functional phrases, like a person singing, my name is Mary. So that might be very difficult for a person to say, but when I add music to that... Give us an example. Yeah, so it very simply... My name is Mary. My name is Mary. My name is Mary. And while we're singing that, I'm tapping out the rhythm of that. So I'm following the natural inflections of the phrase. And you're helping a person to sort of entrain that in their system with the goal of taking away the music and then my name is Mary is there. I got a text here delighted to hear the talented Marina Cassidy this morning. I have a wonderful memory of the choir from Mount Sackville being invited to sing at Marion's wedding at the Beachside Church in Laytown. We were accompanied by the one and only Sister Eugene, mm. whom we all loved dearly. It was a very memorable day. Uh, I think she means you. Mar- Mar- Marina inspired me to sing with the harp, something I continue to do 30 plus years later. My brother passed away a couple of years ago. I still have a beautiful video of him listening to me singing and playing the harp oh. the morning he passed away. I'll treasure it forever. Wishing you all a wonderful Christmas. Isn't that a lovely text? Lovely. Loads of texts about uh, Sister Eugene, by the way. She was a special lady. Was she? A really inspirational lady. Really? Yeah. That's somebody who knows you personally, Marina. Oh. So, um, I, I think you've blown my mind. I've absolutely loved this area. It's really fascinating. It particularly for somebody who, do, who doesn't know anything about it. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous gift to have and to do, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose that is the thing. It is a gift. And uh, I feel it beholds me to share that gift yeah. and make a difference. And that's why at this stage I have found myself um, in music therapy, um, you know, and say in in the palliative care area you know which is such a a privileged area to work in and also to help people realize that you know palliative care is is care over a lifespan however long that is and it's about creating a quality of life and um creating normality fun i mean with the children you know Children are about play and with music and with a range of instruments, we can really play Yeah. while we deal with a lot of other things. Yeah, it's incredible work. Do you, do you find it very satisfying? Absolutely. I, I You have an energy though, Marina, I'm not going to lie. You've <laughs> kind of got this angel energy. It's really oh, lovely, dear. which I encountered on the day. We kind of synced up with your music. Do you remember when we first met? Yes. But you have a really good, amazing energy. Thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, um, uh, people must absolutely love you when they see you coming. I'd say, <laughs> yeah. Um, I just it's come really, with yeah. a, with an openness, yeah. and I think that's what I love too about being a music therapist. You know, it's it's all about possibility and potential, and that was very interesting coming from being a performer and a teacher of music. You know, where that was all appropriately structured and about yeah. perfection. What I love is is the creativity in music therapy. You never know what's going to happen. I can imagine. Yeah. 
hi Brandon I'm a junior doctor who used to work at uh, St James's uh, Marina's music is one of my fondest memories of the place what a special woman that's from Joe hi Brandon we love Marina in Killarney so talented the mother of oh yes of course Jessie Buckley happens to be your daughter <laughs> such a pleasure to listen to this conversation happy Christmas Carol Hogan I heard. yes I mean we must mention that of course as well um, <laughs> your, your wonderful five children you have your mum Yes. Five kids. Will they yeah. all be home for Christmas? Um, all bar the one you mentioned who will oh. be home after Christmas. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Of course. Uh, Oscar-nominated actress oh. Jessie Buckley happens to be your daughter, which is wonderful. But um, you're going to play us a song now out. Would you mind? Oh, I'd be delighted to. Yeah. Can I just tell you a little bit about the song I've chosen? Um, it's a song called Who Knows Where the Time Goes? Oh, go on. Um, which was... Um, I'm be crying now, Maureen. <laughs> Yeah, uh, composed and sung by the wonderful late Sandy Denny and a band called the Fairport Convention. And when I was training to be a music therapist in Edinburgh, I worked at a day centre for people with acquired brain injury. And I think I was just struck as I am now that when people experience illness of whatever form, adult or children, well... Time has a whole other connotation, you know. We're all rushing around deadlines. But when you're in hospital or you're in a care home or you're a child in hospital, um, time is different. Yeah. And I was researching songs and uh, I came across this one. I just loved it because it spoke about that. It spoke about the, um, the friends that stay with us when things happen and just the reassurance that... I'm there with you. Uh, I'm not counting time. And maybe that's how I like to approach uh, my music therapy work. Uh, it's been a joy, Marina Cassidy. Great to see you. Uh, take it away. Thank you so much. still be here 
wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, lovely to see you. On Monday's show, I chatted with Paddy O'Brien, wonderful man in Cork, very, very well known local hero who spoke about the importance of checking in on older people, particularly over this period when people will be maybe left lonely or isolated. And when all of that is sort of magnified, I guess, and you really drove home the stark reality of some people who tend to go under the radar with no one to say hello or check in on them. Well, somebody who was listening to Paddy and was stirred into action is Fiona O'Regan. And Fiona joins me on the phone now. Hi, Fiona. Hello. Hi, Brendan. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks so much for taking our call. So, Fiona, you you, uh, did a little email in saying the man is seriously inspirational and I've contacted a local nursing home. So uh, what was about it? What was about what he said that prompted you to do something? Yeah, well, to be honest, I think, you know, there's so many good organisations out there. You know, there's a lot of people who are very conscious of loneliness in the elderly, but it's actually taking the action that it's easy to put that on the long finger. So when you listen to Paddy speak, I'm sure anyone who heard the show, it was really hard not to be inspired by him and not to like hear the passion and I suppose the emotion in his voice as well. So, so, it just, he, he, so just to remind people if they didn't, I'll just say, so basically, if you remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, Fiona, so Paddy is actually, yeah. uh, uh, Paddy's actually over 80, would you believe? And he's uh, re- yeah. still working for the last 60 years with homeless people particularly, but may, and then older people. And he had helped a man who'd been living for 43 years in a, a disused um slaughterhouse outside Cork just on the outskirt of Cork and he helped him get a home and this man had gone under the radar for all those years and he was Paddy spoke very passionately about people who sort of fall between the cracks in society as it were for want of a better metaphor is that right? Yeah exactly yeah and that story and part of that story that shocked me so much was you know the the gentleman there he didn't even know how to go how to go about applying to like get accommodation at all yeah. so that's where people like Paddy are, are so inspirational but I suppose um, the bit that struck home mostly to me is when Paddy was talking about even elderly people in nursing homes who may have family may not have family and could be on Christmas day that they don't get any visitors at all yeah. and I suppose I'm I'm 32 but I'm aware that we're all going the same direction if so, we're lucky you know yeah, exactly, exactly. And and it's uh, my dad says often it's an honour to age, you know. Um, but it just struck me that, you know, there's some people who have put so much into their own lives, given to maybe communities or to their children or just like have been 32 and, and have had dreams and ambitions of their own and then to end up in a place where we, we've kind of, I suppose, forgotten about them, as Paddy said. Um, and then what was really strong when he was saying is like, don't take action after Christmas, don't take action on Christmas Day, take action now. So it was actually during the call, I just turned down the radio and called my local nursing home. Did you? Um, yeah, like just just because I thought if I don't do it now, he's saying do it now. Just I know there's, of course, you have to be really respectful as well of, you know, guard of vetting and, and the protection of of residents in the nursing homes as well. But I, I just said, if there's any way that I, I can go in to one of these places and even just, I don't know, sing a song or... Without sounding you know, condescending, Fiona, well done. That's brilliant. I'm really oh, well, impressed. No, yeah. I know, but it just, it was, and that's, uh, you know, I was talking to my mom about it yesterday and look, you know, it's not about what, what um, you know, me or, or what I have done or, or anything like that. It's like if I can, if Paddy talked on the radio and he inspired me or hopefully more people than me and if I'm talking back 
and I can inspire one more person just to pick up the phone. There are people there and not everybody wants a visitor, you know, not everybody maybe feels that loneliness in their life. But if as we I don't said, ask, as I said earlier on, know. you know, as a joke, but like, that is a true story, you know. So I was calling the bingo and he's going to stand in front of the telly all day. Yeah, not everybody. Everybody has different needs, yeah. right? What happened when you rang, when you rang the nursing home? Tell me. Yeah, so funny, when they rang, I kind of, like, I, I was a bit tongue-tied trying to explain <laughs> the context. Like, I was like, he's on the radio now, I'm calling now. <laughs> but, um, and they were kind of, to be honest, it, like, if I'm really honest, they seemed a bit taken aback. Um, they didn't seem like, like I kind of had to explain myself. And I started saying, because he had said, uh, Paddy had said, maybe you could bring someone to Mass. So I started saying, is there anyone who wants to go to Mass on Christmas Day? And the lady on the phone was kind of like, who what are you this? talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. You want to take someone to Mass. So I, I, I changed tact and I was like, oh no, I want to visit someone. Um, so so basically she was, she, uh, when I explained the situation, she was extremely grateful and extremely touched that someone would just pick up the phone, you know. And I'm sure they have amazing organisations that come in and out of the, to, to them, you know. But I suppose an individual just taking initiative because of what Paddy said yeah. seemed not to, to be something normal. So, so, so she... Go oh, sorry. No, you go on, sorry. She won. Uh, yeah. So she was... Uh, I did mention, of course, I'm just so conscious of guarded vetting, which I think is sometimes can be a hurdle for actually going and doing these things, you know, but um, she is going to talk to the activities coordinator. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, I've roped in two of my sisters who happen to be in medical industry who are already guard vetted. Ah, um, so clever. I'm, so they have, um, well, one of them actually doesn't know yet, but the other one has agreed. <laughs> she does now. <laughs> <laughs> so she probably heard it now. <laughs> but um, yeah, so they're, they're, they both are, well, certainly one of them has volunteered and because she's already guarded vetted, hopefully she'll be able to go in. So just to, what I now know after my bingo session yesterday in my mom's nursing home <laughs> is that to, to, you can go in as a visitor and you can go in, as you said, with the activities people uh, yeah. and it can be, as long as it's fairly random and not, you know, otherwise you then are elevated to status, the volunteer status and then you have to be guarded vetted. So you actually can visit. Yeah. It, it's totally okay once you just work with the staff who are there, security and obviously the uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, no, and that's yeah. So and that's you know like would be the plan. And even I said to her on the phone, if it did work, I'd I'd love to continue. Now I was jumping ahead of myself, but I think you know Patty's message really like if you don't ask, you don't know. You know if you see if you have an elderly neighbour and you don't ask them, do they do they want help? Do they want company? You know you know some people like like we said don't want that, but I just think it's kind of just just making the move and asking the question and and reaching out because loneliness, for all the the troubles going on in the world, loneliness is actually something that you can you can do something really you know you can really be proactive about and you really can make a change and I think um, uh, right. we and may it, as well create yeah. a culture of that. And so. he, Paddy may articulate it really well, didn't he? Because he said there's no cure for it. All you can do is give people some time. That's all you can do is just give them it's some the time. time. And yeah, and that's, I mean, like, you know, like that's something everybody can have, has the capacity to give. And for all, you know, you may not have money to give, you may not have all of that, but but most people do have time. So, um, yeah, just find him really inspirational. And I don't know if he is listening to this, like, just thank you for, for what you do and, and thanks for inspiring yeah. everybody in Ireland, hopefully. Um, so, Tell, yeah. Would you knock on somebody's door? Would you feel um, strange about I, that? If I knew there was a... If there was a, if I knew there was an elderly person in there, yeah, I would. Yeah. Um, but you know, but there's a, there's a man in my estate I know now, and he 
he like I often see him pass by with his little dog, what? and he's he must be well into his eighties. Yeah. And um, so I I plan on on you know if if I bump into him while I'm out walking my dog, I plan on on striking up a conversation. Good for you. Um, and even that, even just striking up a conversation, is something so easy to do. So um, yeah, that's you that's could the talk plans, about anyway. you could talk about dogs. Yes, exactly. The, the dogs, the dogs exactly. just keep on giving. They just keep on giving. And off, they're amazing. <laughs> Another great cure for loneliness, definitely. Do you, listen, oh, absolutely. So tell me, you're only 32. Do you think your generation oh, is more socially minded? Um. Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I would know, like certainly in my peer group and my own granny, she's 91. Wow, and she, she is. She's inspirational and she's absolutely the head. Like she... She's the queen of the family, you know, um, and and everybody adores her, and and I think she's listening now. So I'll definitely send What's her. What's her name? My love, Norma. Hi, Norma. Happy Christmas, Norma. Norma. Yeah, Norma Cahill. Norma Cahill, yeah, no, and she the the queen, Norma queen Norma. <laughs> exactly, she loved that. Um, but I know her, like you know, her faith and everything has been really uh, strong for her. But I just when I see the love that that we give her and I know like even my own partner he's he's very close to his own granny so I think people are very close to the, like their grandparents and everything like that but I don't necessarily know you know like I said the barriers to actually going and making change I, I've applied for organisations but I've kind of stopped when it says print a guard of vetting form because I just just it's an excuse like it's an easy excuse not to, you know not I need to, proceed. to go yeah it's it. an extra thing to do exactly yeah it's another hurdle what you know, do you, so do you mind if I ask what, do, what area do you work in do you work in support or healthcare I work I work in um, museums okay so, yeah so I'm in uh, yeah down in Waterford in the museums here so Lovely. not really healthcare background but um, certainly I'm, I deal with a lot of men sheds actually who come in to uh, and you know different groups who 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 are organised, I suppose, for, for loneliness, to, to combat loneliness. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like, if if we kind of created more of a culture of, you just go and like knock on your elderly neighbour's door or, you know what I mean, just kind of like more inclusive culture for the elderly. I'm not sure if there's, there's that awareness, but that kind of proactiveness about it. I'm not sure if it's like inbred in us as much. You know, for your, for your granny now, I would do anything, but I would also offer like you know I'd love to help out any elderly person but I don't even really know yeah, now, where to you, start with that so you'll talk to that man with the dog as you said he's over 80 I will and you don't need to be guard of it to talk to your neighbour no that and you see you can nearly be too you know like step back too much or be a bit wary and you just all the rules and everything but like that exactly it's just it's my neighbour he's walking his little dog I he's I, I smile every time I see him I think he's amazing to go out walking every single day I don't know who he goes home to I don't know if he goes home to anyone I've never asked so you know listening to Paddy I'll just You'll position ask. myself on the same side of the road yeah and strike a conversation and maybe he's happy out maybe he doesn't want a friend or maybe it'll be the only conversation he has that day you know um, so yeah like I just like I said like Paddy just made it seem really easy um, and a lot of times you can think there's, oh there's nothing I can do about that well, Paddy's passionate Paddy about it he's pa- he, and I think yeah. Paddy sees Pad- Paddy sees uh, the effects of loneliness and he sees that it can be yeah. he, as he says it, it can, it's a killer you know 100% and actually you know the last text you read that said loneliness is among everybody you know not just the elderly and I completely agree and I suppose 
you know, I've gone through lonely patches during COVID myself, so I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. But the difference with me is I can go and do something about it. Like I can, I have my, I can, you know, I have my mobility, I have everything like that. I can be proactive, I can join clubs. But elderly people, you know, they don't necessarily have that freedom to, yep. to make the change, you know, if they're in nursing homes or something like that. So the only thing that they can do is wait for someone to come to them, with even saying that kind of, well, it's my heart the thought of someone. But, um, you know, so hopefully, look, like, you know, the, the people listening to it, and especially over Christmas, hopefully yeah. it's just something that we can start being you're brilliant. Have a conscious. Fiona O'Regan, you're, yeah. you, you're now inspiring listeners, I hope. And I, have a, I hope oh, you have a... Stop. Ah, no, stop. No, be, no, listen, no. have a happy Christmas <laughs> and give, give the Queen... Give the Queen my love. <laughs> <laughs> happy Christmas thanks and thank, thank you so and, much. And you're, you're brilliant. For thanks for a million. all that you do and, you know, inspiring. So cheers. Fiona O'Regan <laughs> and Waterford, thank you so much. Let's take a break. My guest spends most of her life with her head in the clouds. Nice intro. Uh, she had a dream to make history and joins me on the line now to tell us how. Laura Russell, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Oh, you sound a bit giddy, Laura. Are we all a bit giddy? Good morning. I've been on late, so I've after, when I have to get up early, I'm a bit wild. Yeah. Oh, a bit like myself. A bit like myself. Perfect. We're perfect partners for this now. So you fly planes for a living. I do. I do professionally fly planes, yes. Uh, but also in your spare time, tell listeners about your very niche hobby. Uh, yeah, so um, since um, 2009, I've been competing in something called aerobatics, which is um, a competitive sport. Probably most people would be familiar with it from going to air shows like Bray Air Show. Mm. Um, so people would probably typically call it stunt flying. Uh, but what I do is um, a graded competitive sport um, and uh, I'm after uh, competing at advanced level um, in the world championships this year in, in October and November and uh, I became the first Irish female to do this so Ooh, that, yeah, it's pretty cool there's you, there's you making history right there that's amazing uh, so I would call it loop the loops, right? Yeah. That yeah. kind of simple terms of what we'd say, looking up in the sky and seeing small aircraft, you know, doing aerobatics. So amazing. Um, so how and when did you get into a hobby like aerobatics? It's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So it, it actually, it, it came before my commercial flying career. Uh, I started flying when I was uh, just after beginning um, a course in physics in Cork and UCC. I took an intro flight um, but I got a taste of aerobatics that following summer and I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. And I just started with the basics, loops and rolls. Loop the loop, uh, as yeah, I said. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, that would have been the summer of 2005. And then my first ever competition was 2009 in okay. England. Yeah. So we'll talk about the World Championships in a minute and the fact that you are the first Irish woman to take part. It's really amazing. But for us, give us a bit of an insight into how one prepares for this kind of event. Ooh, yes. So it is a long road. I can um, imagine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I when I first started, I really was just doing the basics, loops and rolls and stuff, you know. Um, but uh, as you move up the levels, it gets ever more complicated. Um, the aircraft that I fly, it's a very modern composite uh, carbon aircraft. So exactly like you'd see in um, the Red Bull Air Race, if you remember oh, that. Yeah. 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 Um, so extremely powerful. Uh, they are propeller driven engines, um, but they're capable of um, pulling a lot of G-force. And um, you make your way up the levels by um, practicing more and more complex maneuvers. So you wouldn't just have a loop 
Gotcha. You know, at my level, you would have a loop with some rolling in, in during the loop. You know, okay. so it becomes very complicated. But yeah. you don't, as I'm, I'm just trying to get the foundations of. You don't train out your back garden. You where do you train? You have to go no, away to train. I right? go elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. So there's very little of this in Ireland. Um, I uh, have this year found a coach, which is a massive advantage, right. um, because it becomes a point where you really do need someone to, yeah. to coach you at this level. So uh, he's French, but he trains us in Hungary. So I go to um, to Budapest and then uh, drive down the road to a little airfield um, for a training camp. Um, wow. When when funds permit. <laughs> okay, I can imagine we'll get into that. In a minute. Okay, but uh, talk us through the championship. So it was in Nevada. It was yes. Uh, Remind everyone, us when. Uh, it was the end of October to the beginning of November, so a stretch of about two and a half weeks. Very good. Um, so I arrived over in in Las Vegas uh, on the eighteenth of October, and um, I spent five days training over there at the airfield. The airfield is, it was about 30 minutes south of Las Vegas. I'm going to so ask a really stupid question. So go on, yeah. You don't fly over in your little aircraft, do you? You have to get one no, there. No, no. I, uh, thankfully, no. That would have been a lot of stress. Um, <laughs> no, I, I did the, the uh, Aer Lingus, um, Shannon to JFK and then a Delta over okay. to Las Vegas. Very yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I had lots of equipment to bring with me as well. Like, so, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, five days of training and then um, the opening ceremony was on the 24th and then it was into the, the competition then at large for the next 10 days. And uh, you obviously love it. I can hear it in your voice. Oh God, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I'm just trying to get a sense of uh, how complicated it is. So how long is a routine, for example, and what's involved? Um, so it's probably a bit misleading because the routine is very short. My, my competition flight itself... Uh, from takeoff to landing is only 12 minutes. Oh. Um, and the actual sequence of manoeuvres that I perform, which can be between 10 and 14 sequen- uh, manoeuvres, is about four minutes long. Right. Um, so the extra time around that is spent taking off, climbing up to uh, your beginning altitude and then um, doing your safety manoeuvres. And, and then you uh, start your sequence. Yeah. So you do your manoeuvres and sequence. And I love the description here that I read that you once said it's basically aerial equivalent of ice skating. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Talk, tell me about that, how, how you're compared with your manoeuvres and you have to hit a certain number of manoeuvres, is it? Exactly. So they're, they're predetermined. Um, in every competition, we fly a known sequence, which is one we have um, created and designed or how our fab. coach has. Yeah. So we, it's, it's a routine we are very familiar with because we've been, we've been practicing it all year. Um, there's 10 figures in that, 10 manoeuvres. Um, and they're, I mean, they're so expertly choreographed. You know exactly where you're going to be, you know, down to tens of metres within the performance zone. And um, the remaining sequences in the competition then would be unknown. So you're given them on the ground. You have to learn them on the ground and then you go up and fly them for the first time in front of the judges. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's where the competition is very and much as a commercial, one. as a commercial pilot, you know computers do a lot of the heavy lifting for you when you're in the air, but yes. there's no computers on board these. No, it's it's um, the exact opposite of commercial flying um, because you th- there's no autopilot, it's just you. <laughs> does it make you a better pilot? Uh, I would argue that it does. It makes you a very good handling pilot um, and it gives you a great appreciation for aerodynamics. Yeah. And you're not one of these now on a commercial flight where you would do a, a little. You couldn't. You can't oh, play around. Oh goodness, no, 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 no. It's no, no, not at all. No. <laughs> Does uh, anything risky or dangerous ever happen when you're competing? Because you're high up in the air, you're going at massive speeds, as you said. Yeah. Is it ever? Is it ever dangerous? Um, no. Like I think this is the perception that it looks wild. It does look wild. It looks wild. Let's be <laughs> But uh, it's very much not. I think actually every aerobatic pilot you talk to is very risk averse. Like, what? really? Oh yeah. I mean, th- the thing about it is, 
it's just us up there in the aircraft. Oh, yeah. We're responsible for ourselves in the aeroplane. What does um, that feel like? Oh, th- I mean, it's very hard to put it into words. The whole thing is so thrilling and exhilarating. I, I don't actually think there is English words for it, you know? Like, um, it, like for aerobatics, like obviously the sensations are absolutely sublime you know flying upside down is absolutely incredible and so freeing but uh, the emotional response it generates in you is very hard to capture with words oh wow you know? yeah yeah, yeah. I, I completely hear yeah. you yeah. so um, it's an adrenaline rush obviously right yes uh, and when you're flying upside down do you, can you get do you get queasy no you just get used to that you do you'd be surprised so like obviously years ago when I first did it um yeah, there was a huge adrenaline rush and a slight nausea but I think it's like anything that you do very regularly you get, you used, get to used to it very yeah. quickly and the human body is incredibly uh, adept at um, getting used to G-force I have to tell you yeah. you're very articulate on this <laughs> you really are you're, you're really making it very clear to me how it feels uh, yeah <laughs> yeah. and you clearly love it obviously oh I absolutely adore it the problem is I could talk about it for hours <laughs> so. So it must be great to meet with other pilots. I know the feeling, you know, people just yes. want to talk about yes. flying upside down. Oh yeah, we're we're sickening if we all get together. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just hang off door, hang door frames. Um, tell me this: uh, How did you get on at the World Championships? Now oh, let's start. You are the yeah. first wo- Irish woman to take part in them. Correct. Yeah, I and think I'm the first and only Irish female to do this. Um, there's a, f- a handful of guys all right in the country who have been competing for years. I don't so much anymore now, but um, so in my mind, I just wanted to compete and you know tick that box and um, worry about doing good in other years so I did suitably like terrible <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't come last so uh, I, I've noted that But out of 49 pilots there's only 4 women in that There is yeah That's yeah amazing. and I think I actually came third in the, the female competitors however I must say it's not a sport that discriminates in any way like there's no advantage competitively if you're male or female um, Does it help if you're a little smaller? It does and I am very small so <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I'm, I'm well I'm a light small so I had Kind of like a, a jockey in a way there's yeah, less yeah, yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah a serious performance advantage there like yeah, yeah. Good for you <laughs> yeah, It's good yeah <laughs> What is the prize for winners? Is it, it what, How does it work? Uh, don't laugh but there's no prize okay. you just get like you know the, like the Olympics you get yeah medal. exactly you get an ego and a medal <laughs> and you get to be the first woman in history to ever do Irish okay, woman that also yes yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. so uh, the one thing that's screaming at me now of course it's probably quite an expensive hobby yeah it is uh, long long ago I gave up thinking about how much it costs because I just adore it so much so. good for you yeah yeah all the savings are ploughed into it it's yeah it is expensive enough um, I, I I kind of uh ballpark in my head have uh, maybe 6,000 euro associated with each training camp I do wow. and I t- try to do three, three, four of them a year so wow. yeah, yeah and then that that's, doesn't do include you know competition I mean, That's a lot of money but it's not you know it's not prohibitive yeah, you know I mean, you work hard for that it, it, I mean it's like any pursuit or sport that you love like you you will automatically and naturally kind of figure out a way f- yeah exactly you will exactly you'll figure out a way you know um, and I I always kind of think that you know there's a lot of other things I could be spending my money on but I choose not to because I absolutely adore this you know yeah so you are, is this the advanced world uh, championship now is, uh, this is yes a, this is senior level uh, yeah, so there's two levels. So there's um, there's five levels in total, um, and the two top levels are advanced on and unlimited. So this in 2024, I'm going to be competing in advanced again. I'm going to be doing the European Championships representing Ireland. That takes place in Romania in September. So that's the next big goal. Oh my goodness, that's amazing! 
that's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Um, do, are most of your competitors commercial pilots as well? There's a fair few of them. Uh, I think it, it's probably a career that lends itself quite well to um, pursuing aerobatics. Not, not that it's mutually exclusive or anything. Um, I think a lot of guys that I fly with at work would never, ever, ever want to be upside down in an airplane. So, um, <laughs> But there are quite a few competitors um, who would be commercial um, flyers all right. Yeah. Just a text here. Can I, can I ask Laura, does she wear a flight pressure suit to cope with the G-force? I do not. Uh, I do deal with it myself. Yeah. So there's um, ways and means of bracing your body against the G force. Um, Is it all about core strength? It it, exactly core strength. So if you learn how to breathe and brace, yeah. I I do in my spare time. I weightlift a lot, which is a mechanism to teach you all about how to breathe and brace your core appropriately for the G-force. So it sounds, yeah. I have to be honest, it sounds amazing. So how does it feel to make history? Like, will you will you sit back over Christmas and go, I made history this year? Yeah, I, it's pretty surreal. I, I, it took, I mean, goodness, the come down after Vegas was quite long. Like it took Said me many go, people. I, I, I mean, I think I took a week to even unzip my suitcase because it was <laughs> such a, an incredible experience. So I think over Christmas, I'll actually sit down and think, yeah, wow, I did that. I, I fell into your Instagram, which is great, by the way, which is Alpha Laura. That's it, yeah. So what's the alpha for? What's the significance of that? Uh, uh, I was, so I'm pretty old now. I think I'm old. So I was around at the, the beginning of internet handles. So that was my very first email address. <laughs> <laughs> so I've kept it forevermore. And I just want to ask you very quickly, uh, would you, the dream would be to own your own plane, I imagine, would it? Yeah, if I, like if I won the lottery, I'd go out straight away in the morning. Much would it cost to, uh, to own your own one? Um, you can get, okay, so you can get secondhand ones which are in, in, in incredible condition now for maybe two and a half, three hundred thousand euro. Uh, really? If you're buying one from the factory brand new, it is half a million. Like it's okay. it's, it's a sizable. Yeah, yeah. Now you, yeah. you, if people want to find out more, you have a, a website which is suicaviation.ie. Is that right? That's it. Yeah, um, I do lots of career talks and um, flying instruction. Um, Very good. So I teach aerobatics in England, and uh, I do uh, flying instructing in Waterford here in Ireland. The the just the the right side up, no no upside down stuff here. Because uh, we don't have too many aerobatic aircraft in the country. Well, listen. Um, but yeah, please. Uh, I like I said, I will talk about flying and aerobatics all day long. So if you want to get in touch, please do. <laughs> yeah, suislaura uh, uh, But listen, best of luck in Romania in September at the 2024 European you Championships, so representing Ireland and making history. Laura Russell, thanks very much. Now, while we're all a bit giddy and feeling the Christmas cheer, um, we've been, I've been thinking on the past few weeks and we've had some really powerful conversations. And at the heart of those chats has been the importance of community. So before we get completely swept up in the chaos of Christmas, let's slow things down and take a few minutes to consider what a difference it can make when we look out for those who could get lost. Jackie Smith is the National Fostering Lead at Tusla. Good morning, Jackie. Hi Brendan, how are you? Thanks so much for taking our call. How are you this morning? I'm not too bad, delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Very important conversation we're just about to have. And I'm sure uh, you need foster carers all the time, but how urgent is the situation right now? Yeah, we really, really need um, foster carers in Tusla at the moment. Um, There's always a need. And I suppose one of the things that happens is when you have fabulous foster carers, as we do in Tusla, and they're looking after children really well, then they, their house is full. And so we need new foster carers coming in all the time for children and teenagers who need someone to look after them. So there's a real pressing need at the moment. And I think it, 
I, just to note, children can come into care from every part of society, urban, rural, LGBTQ plus community, religion, all religions, no religion, all cultures. Is that right? Absolutely. It's a really, really diverse population, just like what you see in Ireland today. So, And you're so right, children come from every part of society. Um, it could be anybody you know, it could be, you know, any any background at all. So there's no uh, profile for a child in care. Every child in care is unique and their situation is unique. And, and that's really important, isn't it, to, to remember that because you, you have an idea in your head of what a foster child might be, but they're just all such a different story. Now, we don't want to dwell on personal stories, obviously, but what situations unfold in someone's life where their child may need to go into care? So I suppose when a child needs to come into care, it's because something has gone wrong for a family and that might be something that's temporary or it might be something more long term. So look, we know that, you know, it, it's, Society is, is difficult um, at the best of times and if you've got other struggles or sometimes something can happen that can just be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So it can be stuff like health, addiction, you know, just really struggling to cope for a period of time. And so that's where our foster carers and to step in and they help and look after a child while we see can a family come back together? Are they able to resume care of their children? And when they are, that's a wonderful thing. And when they're not, there are our foster families to make sure that children still are growing up within a family environment, which and is really, really important. I think, you know, as as somebody as somebody who has considered it, and I think this conversation is very important as well, that somebody like me it would be eligible probably to foster as well. So that, you know, we don't have children. We live in an apartment in the city centre. So it, you, you're, you talk to all sorts of people who would consider oh, fostering. absolutely. And I mean, I think we mentioned it there. The population of children who are in foster care is really diverse. And it's essential that our population of foster carers are also diverse. Because the kind of home that works for one child won't necessarily work for another child. So some kids thrive in houses that are really busy with loads of children and out in the country. And some children do better in houses that are quiet, maybe with one carer or, or a couple. Children who... What's really important as well is being able to stay in your locality, in your environment. So if you've grown up in an urban area, you know, you've grown up in a flat, you've grown up, you know, um, surrounded by a particular culture. If you have to come into foster care, being able to stay in similar surroundings is incredibly helpful for you. It makes that trauma and that change much less dramatic. I'm just, um, I'm struck by something you said there about how a family situation can change all of a sudden. And it could be... An accident, couldn't it? It could be, you know, a parent all of a sudden has passed away or something. So it can be very sudden, the change that happens that would drive people to have to, you know, put their children into foster care. So I'm really struck by that because tragedy can cause it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And a tragedy can, I suppose, predicate other difficulties happening in the family. And sometimes, you know, if you're lucky, you have lots of supportive people around you. But not everybody has that. And sometimes we can be doing okay for a period of time and that may change. Now, some families are able to, you know, get better and things go well and children go home and foster carers are part of this, like, amazing journey where a child can be looked after while people are able to look after themselves and do what they need to do. And sometimes foster children will stay in a foster home until they're 18 and the most important thing is that children have the opportunity to be with somebody who's looking after them and who's caring for them during this really difficult time and that's what our foster carers do you know they give children love give them warmth predictability routine you you touched on it uh, there a second ago and I think it's important 
as somebody who probably would consider, especially after this conversation, um, that actually your aim as the lead foster foster lead in Tusla is actually ultimately to get the family unit, original family unit back together. That's the mission normally. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, we're always looking to see if a child can return to live in their biological home with their parents or grandparents or extended family. And I think sometimes people worry about that. They worry about, you know, if a child had to leave me, how would I manage? But actually, sometimes that can be a really beautiful thing because mm. you can be part of a family coming back together and it can be a really happy time. Yeah. Foster carers and birth parents can have really good relationships, actually. You see, this and is sometimes foster carers can become part of the extended family, nearly. That, this is very important information, actually, because this is the stuff you kind of cul-de-sac and you're thinking about you don't think past that That could, you could be part of something yeah. really beautiful and meaningful in, in a child's life actually so f- the family structure has changed we know very well much so in the past few years hasn't it I mean the extended family has shrunk and that has an impact doesn't it Oh, completely, completely. I mean, when you hit a time of adversity or difficulty, isn't that who we reach out to? And if you don't have people around you who are able to support you, then that can be really difficult. Um, So we see lots of different types of families, you know, blended families. And and our foster families also look really different. And I think you you were hitting on that there earlier. You know, we have you know, blended families who foster. We have single people who foster. We have people from different cultures from the LGBTQ plus community. It's it, Society is really diverse and fostering is really diverse. And that's, it's really important because I think people still wonder about that. Like, could I do it? And actually, it's ordinary people who foster. And that's what we're bringing is that, you know, routine, normality. Ordinary is really, really good for children. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually drill into the type of people who foster because I love the notion and the debunking the myth that you that you, you you don't have to not work you you can be single but before we do that are you having fewer foster carers now than you did before? It's definitely different. I think in society now we have very high expectations of ourselves and we wonder a lot like can I do this? Oh, you know, would I have the skills? People are very busy and they're working and they do, as you say, sometimes think, God, you know, maybe I need to be at home full time. It's that type of thing that makes people really question those decisions. And as I was saying, they're like, it's ordinary people who foster. You know, it's farmers and gardeners and crash assistants and, you know. So it's it's really important, and I think maybe sometimes put too much pressure on ourselves that we think we have to be superheroes to do this. You know. Yeah, I I love that because you do think, oh, I wouldn't be good enough. I don't know anything. I've never had, I've never had children. You know, I I I'd be terrified. But you're saying that's what you want is is ordinary people to step forward. Now, it obviously can be a difficult time for a child. So, what's the ideal fostering situation you can hope for? The most important thing for a foster carer, I suppose, is a couple of things, and one is that you really love children. That's that's the most important thing. The next is that you have space in your head and in your heart for a child. So you're able to kind of give a child that attention. And then what we do in Tooth, and this is our job, is, you know, we we try and match children with the right type of home environment. So, you know, for maybe a very small newborn baby might need someone who's at home all the time to look after them. You know, a, a 13 or 14 year old it might be fine for their carer to be working, mm. you know, because they're at school. And, and like we have many teenagers who they need somewhere to live so they can do their junior search, so they can, you know, progress in their lives. And 
we have respite foster care too, a care is actually that, you know, look after children for breaks to help families continue to function. So they almost step in like that extended family to look after a child at the weekend or for a week over the summer, gotcha. maybe to allow a mum and dad to go for a bit of treatment or to get some help that they need. So there's all these kind of foster care that fit in at different times in a child's journey. It might be part of keeping a family together. It might be looking after a child while some parents try and do some work. Or it might be looking after a child long term. Mm. Really depends on what suits you and what's right for the child is really important in it. So every situation is completely unique. Totally. That's amazing because every house is completely unique. Uh, So apart from a home to live in, what does fostering bring to a child's life? Oh, it's it's literally life changing. So it it brings the experience, I suppose, of stability, of routine. It helps children when children feel loved and cared for. That really teaches them that they are worthy of love and care. So it can change a child's life and entire perspective. You know, there are children that come into care, and they are able to go home because their parents had that time. And there are children who come into care, and they are able to finish their schooling, go to college do an apprenticeship, it it can just change their life and heal from any traumatic experiences that they've had. And the first way you start to heal is by being somewhere that you feel safe. And that's what a foster home does. It gives a child a place that they can feel safe, that they can relax, that they can let their guard down and build relationships with trusting, safe adults and family members. Do children uh, often have to leave the area they've grown up in to go into foster care? Is that a difficult thing? Unfortunately, that does happen, Brendan. It does because sometimes I think, like you were saying there, maybe people don't realise that actually children in my area need foster carers. Mm. Um, and so they think, well, somebody else will do that. You know, somebody else will step forward. Honestly, you're really making me think about it. You know, that. Yeah, yeah really you are. know, and I think we've all probably done that. Yeah. But and And that means then you know, that children have not just to leave their home, Mm. but they have to leave their school or they have to leave their football club or, you know, their trainer that they love that they see on a Sunday. So it's so important. To try and keep those things, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's so important. So some listeners who might think my life is all over the place, it isn't organised at all, how could I be a foster carer? What What do you say to them? The first step, I think, is to talk to somebody specifically about you and your situation. So the first thing I would do would be, we have a free phone line. I would ring that line and I would have a conversation with a social worker about my What's situation. What's the free phone line while you're saying it there? I'll write it down. It's 1800 226 771. 1800 Then you can talk specifically about your circumstance. Another thing that often happens is people will worry, well, look, you know, maybe I hit a bad time in my life. Maybe, you know, I, will my background have an impact? Yeah. And what I would say is what you bring to fostering is you, your experiences. That's your superpower. And it might be that you grew up in a really stable, steady home, or it might be that you got through a really difficult time. But that's what you're going to bring in. And that's why it's really important to sit and talk to somebody because that as well helps us to know what child will you be best able to care for and so everybody has something to bring and it might be that as say you do respite fostering you might do short-term fostering I mean I, I know a woman really well who is retired and she fosters babies you know yeah. and people might think that you could That's do that, just but text, she does that is, is there an age limit to fostering 
there's no upper age limit. Wow. Um, there is Amazing. a lower age limit, all right. We do recommend people are over 23, um, but there's no upper age limit to fostering. And I say, like, people do all sorts of different fostering. The, the lady I know, it suits her to do short-term fostering. She loves babies and, and it fits with her lifestyle. Something else will fit with somebody else's and we need all kinds of carers. So that's okay. So the, it, while, of course, it breaks your heart to think of a, a small child needing care, the, but there are older children in the system that need support, aren't there? There are, absolutely, all the way up to you know, children coming in care up until their 18th birthday and then in aftercare. So many of our children who are in um, foster care, they'll continue living with their foster carers after they turn 18 because they're part of the family. And like I was saying, you know, we have kids there who are in, you know, um, secondary school doing their exams and they just need somewhere safe and stable to be while that is happening. They're going on maybe doing apprenticeships. And it's a really wonderful part of a person's life to be in because it's when you're learning who you are as an adult, you know, your first relationships, your first job. And a carer can be really part of that. And then I say, if you are someone who is working, this may fit really well because that person is moving into independence. You know, it's it's more flexible for you as a carer. And you mentioned something actually, Brendan, about there, like if you haven't had children of your own. And some of my most wonderful times with foster carers and seeing them doing amazing jobs are foster carers who have never had children because everybody starts from that point. You know, you start learning as you go. Um, First so time parents have never not, had children, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's something, it's about personality, it's about your motivation. It's, you know, and, and we have amazing foster carers in Tisla with loads of kids, with no kids, um, and they're doing a fantastic job. Like, they're just amazing. So, I I suppose we're talking to you because you want to challenge the notion that people go, isn't that person great? I could never do that. You want to challenge that idea, right? And you've done that very, very well. So I'm going to let you finish off with just speaking directly to people who might be considering fostering. So what I would say is if this is something that you've thought about, now is the time to make that call because there are children out there who could really, really benefit from the gifts that you have to give. And if you have questions, if you're wondering, you can ring and talk those out. And that's okay. And it might be today that's the right day for you. Might be next week, might be next year. But have the conversation would be my thing. Have the conversation, ring us and talk to us. We'd be only delighted to talk it out with you. And of course, there's uh, information at tusla.ie, T-U-S-L-A, tusla.ie. have all the information. That number is 1-800-226-771. Jackie Smith, that was a stunning conversation I love this show (laughs) that was great have a happy happy Christmas and thank you so much thank you so much for talking to me and many happy returns to you and all your 